Thank you, Peter. Folks, turn, take your Bibles and turn to John 17. If you need a Bible, they will be glad to give you one. Coming down the aisle if you need one. John 17. I was thinking about this, they were singing that last song, and I did a funeral yesterday afternoon. I did not know the guy at all. I knew his daughter. It's an old friend of mine, and they asked me to, to officiate at his funeral. And I was sharing with a lady who does know me, and I've known her for a long time, and she came up to me. She said two really profound things. She said, uh, we were talking about grandchildren, and, she, and I, I guess somebody else has said this. I've never heard it. I thought it was definitely profound. She says, you know why you have children? So you can have grandchildren. And I said, I do understand that now. And then she said, I know why you've always said you like to do funerals. And I said, that, that's true. She said, it's because you really do have a chance to offer people hope, don't you? And I said, yeah, that's the bottom line. It's because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We have something to talk about that's worth talking about. We do have hope. We do know there is a tomorrow beyond the grave. You can stand there. You can look anybody in the eye, a skeptic, an agnostic, an atheist, someone who's just hurting, you can look them in the eye and say there is hope in the person of Jesus Christ. And I, I am excited and thrilled every time I get a chance. It's, if I know the person, it helps. When you don't know somebody, you try to get to know them. And this guy was, I really would have enjoyed getting to know him after talking to his family. But if nothing else, and most importantly, you get to open the Word of God and say that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in him will never die. You will die physically, but you'll spend eternity with him in paradise. And as we come to John 17, if you look on your handout, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. We began it last week, and I'm going to try to finish it this week. But I know me, and that may not happen, but if you listen quickly, we might get that done. I noticed I was sitting at my desk this week doing some work, and I looked down at the calendar, and I realized in three weeks it's Easter, and I probably ought to begin to look at that, so... John 17 is the wrap-up of the Upper Room Discourse. We've been talking about it now for several weeks. Part of my, just absolutely my favorite part, one of my favorite parts of the Bible, is this time, this last night, Jesus has on earth with his 11 disciples that are going to carry forward and spread his name and begin the incredible church age. Jesus is preparing them to carry forward. And we've seen all those great principles that he laid out for them. This is what I need you to do after I'm gone. And it's a, it's a night of agony, it's a night of pain, it's sorrow, they're troubled. He says several times in the Upper Room Discourse, let not your heart be troubled. And the reason he says that is their heart was troubled. They were afraid, they were confused, they were disappointed, they didn't understand, they didn't want him to go away. And he kept saying to them, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Comforter to be with you. You're going to, you're going to have all that truth reminded to you so you could share that with the world. So when you get to chapter 17, as the upper room discourse wraps up, you're looking at Jesus' prayer. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, all the things we've studied, and he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. And we dealt with last week the first part of this prayer. At the end of this incredible time he spent with them, preparing them to go away, he says, all right, Let's pray. And he talks about three very special relationships. Last week, we looked at relationship number one. It was Jesus the Son, God the Son, and his relationship with God the Father, an eternal relationship, one that had always existed, one that would always exist. And we dealt with that last week. 
the idea of glorifying God the Father, the Son being glorified, giving a correct estimate of what God the Father was worth through Jesus' authority, through his death and through his life. So today we want to move to the next part of that prayer, where Jesus now prays for the eleven. He now prays for his disciples. And starting in verse 6, Jesus is going to the cross with all that he's about to face, the agony of the torture, physical pain, horrific beating to the point that his vital organs are exposed, the act of crucifixion itself, where literally you are strangled to death and your heart bursts, the fact he's going to be deserted by everyone, the fact that he who is perfect, who knows no sin, God the Son, is going to take the debt of all sin of all time on his back and cry out to his Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? With all of that ahead of him, his concern is for the 11 guys in the room. Not for himself, not for this moment of utter, sheer agony and loneliness that he's about to face as he becomes the sin debt, the sacrificial lamb that alone could atone for the sins of the whole world. It's specifically, as I read it, for my sins. His concern is for other people, for the 11 guys in the room, and he wants to pray for them. Seven times in this prayer, Jesus refers to believers, the 11 in the room and all who will follow, including us. He refers to believers as the Father's gift to him. That's the way he looked at them. That's the way he looks at you. This prayer is about special, intimate relationships. God the Father with God the Son. God the Son with his bride, including you and I. That's why I love it so much. But I want us to look at this prayer for the 11. And then I want us to look at his prayer for his church, which includes us. The first thing I want you to notice as he prays for the 11, it's about sharing his name. Look at verse 6. And it's a little bit different what I've got on your outline. This is verses 6 through 8. He's praying for them about sharing his name. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I've given them the words which you've given me. They have received them. They have known surely that I came forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Notice the beginning of verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men. Jesus took God's name and he manifested it or he revealed it to the disciples. Now, specifically at this moment in the prayer, he's praying for these 11 guys that he's passing the mantle to. And he says, Father, these guys that you've given to me, this special gift from the Father to the Son, I've manifested or revealed or made known your name to them. And the name of God if he's talking, that he's talking about, you go back to Exodus 3.14, you don't have to turn there, but God told Moses his name was I am. And throughout the book of John, the way John writes his book is he takes the miracles of Jesus in intensity and he lays them out from changing water into wine to raising Lazarus from the dead. And he builds around those miracles. But he also takes great I am statements of Jesus and he builds around those. He's not writing a chronological treatise of the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, and Luke did that. What John is writing is this fervent, the evangelical, passionate discourse that Jesus is God. And therefore, we are responsible to him and should follow him. So he says, I've manifested your name to them. He had taught them. He had said to them and then shown them, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. 
And after that last great statement, I am the resurrection and the life, he said, do you believe this? And when I do a funeral, I usually end with that. And here's how I end it. Every human being that's ever walked planet Earth has to answer that question. Do you believe this, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that through him alone you can conquer death? From Adam to me and going forward, every human being that's ever lived has to answer that question. Some answer it no. Most answer it no. For those that say yes and trust him, believe in him, are born again. I am the resurrection and the life. So he says to the Father in his prayer, I've manifested your name. They've seen me walk on water. They've seen me change the molecular structure of water into wine. They've seen me heal somebody who's blind from birth. They've seen me give someone a new limb who was lame. They've seen me say to a storm, a horrific storm, peace, be still, and it immediately dissipate. They've seen me raise dead people, and they come walking out of their tomb. That's pretty good. If you'd been there, and you couldn't question that those events took place, all you could say is, I know, you, I, know I choose not to believe, or this guy's God. You don't, an average person doesn't do those kind of things. Do you understand that? Unless it's the power of God. So he said, I've manifested your name. Not only that, not only had they seen the incredible miracles, they'd heard him teach. And the Bible says that they marveled at how he taught, because he taught, we talked about last week, with an authority. They'd heard it. They'd learned. They'd seen his works. They'd heard his words. And then they had seen his character. Remember, he never sinned. The Bible says he was tempted in every way we are, yet never sinned. So in every situation, what would his response have been? The perfect one. In every situation, he would always have done what's right. That's just hard to even fathom, isn't it? The only person that's ever done that besides Jesus is the guy your wife was supposed to have married. You know, if I'd have just married him. So Jesus said, I manifested your name. They've seen it. They know it. But also, not only did he do that, Jesus did something that's really interesting. That to this day, is what makes us attracted to him. He taught them that God was not to be feared in a negative sense, but that he was a heavenly father. Not the terrible, omnipotent one who will get me, but my father who wants to embrace me, wants to love me, wants to care for me, wants to intimately know me, wants to spend eternity with me. They began to understand what it meant that God was a father. When Jesus would pray, they would see he prayed to his father. That It was all about the father's will. I only want to do, I want to hallow the name of the Father. Jesus said, reveal that name, that character. And he said, now, Father. Fifty-three times in the upper room discourse, the word Father is used. Fifty-three times. One hundred and twenty-two times John refers to it in his gospel. It was paramount. A special relationship. Jesus said, I want them to share your name. You gave them to me. Verse 7, now they have known that all things which you have given to me are from you. I've given them the words which you've given me. I've taught them. I've shown them. I've modeled them. They have received them. And they have known surely that I came from you. I came from you, Father. And they have believed that you sent me. And now I'm going to send them out. The second thing he wanted them to understand as he prayed for them, prayed for the Father, prayed to the Father for them, is that they would have security through his name. They would have security through his name. Look at verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are, 
While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. None of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Go back to verse 9 for just a moment. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. What you're seeing here is this idea of the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. That's why it's called that, where he intercedes for these 11 guys. Now, you take that verse out of context, I do not pray for the world, and it looks like, so Jesus doesn't care for those, for the rest of the people. No, what I want you to see is the intimacy of this prayer. Do you ever pray prayer? Pray a prayer just for one person? If you don't, let me ask you to pray for one. Me. Sure you do. Somebody you know is hurting, you pray for them, right? You don't mention everybody else. I want you to see the intimacy Jesus had for these 11 guys, how much he loved them, and he knew what they were about to face, how difficult it was going to be. That they, He said earlier to them, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, let's go, boys. You're probably going to be martyred if you follow me because a cross meant execution. But if you want to follow me, pick it up and let's go. Deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me and understand you're probably going to die. So as he prays for these 11 guys, he says, I don't, I'm not praying for the world right now, Father. This is the intimacy of this high priestly prayer. I'm praying for these 11 because I want them to go out and manifest now my name. I want to be glorified in them. In other words, I want the world to see who Jesus of Nazareth really is through the testimony of these 11 guys. You know what's so fascinating about this? We've talked about it several times. At this moment in time, as Jesus prays for these 11 guys, what is their mood? Are they excited and fired up and pumped and let's go? Are they? No, they're scared, they're terrified, they're confused, they're, they don't want to do this. Did Jesus know all that? Yes, he loved them and he knew their heart. Let not your heart be troubled. He knew they were troubled, but he also knew he had a job for them to do. And so he's praying for the Father, to the Father, for them. Lord, I want them to be secure. I want them to be confident. I want to intercede on their behalf. And the beauty of that is the Bible says Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. It continues to this day. But let's focus on the 11 for a moment. They are God's gift to Jesus, and he's praying for those guys. Their job, their job going forward was to glorify Jesus Christ. Did they always get it right? Let's take the next day. Did Peter get it right? No. But he did in time. He did in time. See, there's a, there's a message here. Let's fast forward 2,000 years. Did you always get it right? Do I always get it right? No. No. But my goal is I want to, you see? And I know Jesus is interceding for me. And I want the... See, they had one job. We have one job. It's to glorify Jesus Christ. So that the world will correctly know who Jesus is. There's so much junk out there, even in church, that's wrong about Jesus. It's important that those of us who know him manifest his name, his character, his nature, his person in us, through us, individually, corporately. And when I do mess up, which you will, what do I do? I say, my bad. I'm wrong. 
I messed up. That's the beauty of understanding who God is. I didn't stop being his son because I messed up. Jesus wants them to be secure. He prays for their protection. Look at verse 11. I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world until I, and I come to you. It's going away. Holy Father, keep them through your name. That those whom you have given to me, that we may be one, they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And he talks about Judas. This is the only place, if you write in your Bible, it's an interesting note. It's the only place in the entire Bible that the term Holy Father is used to refer to God. Was this prayer important to Jesus? Holy Father, holy, set apart, unique, the only one who can do this. He said, I've been protecting them while I was here, and I'm going away. My prayer, Father, two things. Please notice this because it's so important. It's going to be a recurring thing. He prays, Lord, first of all, Father, protect them. Please don't miss the second prayer. It's over and over in this high priestly prayer. Father, they need to be unified. You see that? I pray that they're one as we are. We talked about that last week, the unity within the Godhead. Jesus said, I'm praying, Father, that they be unified. Does it mean they agree on every single thing? Of course not. But what it means is they have one unified task. And what is it? To glorify Jesus Christ. They had fights. If you read the book of Acts, they had fights. They had disagreements. Paul, later on, who becomes the leader of the church, at one point said, I don't want John Mark around anymore. I don't want him around. Then later on, they, got, they, they patched it up. Christians are not always going to agree on the non-essential things, but we sure can't agree on the essential. Be unified on the person of Christ, the nature of his work, who he is, what he did, and what it means to know God. He says, Lord, I pray for their protection. Why did, he, why did Jesus pray for their protection? Because he knew they were going to need it, right? Had the Romans against them, they had the Jews against them, the entire world would turn against them. But if you read the book of Acts and you study history, Within one generation, those that were led by these 11 guys turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Father honored the prayer of the Son. He protected them. They died. They were martyred over and over again, not just the 11, but others who followed. Why? Because they believed Jesus was exactly who he said he was, and they were willing to die for that. Pray for their protection. Not, notice, he didn't pray that they would not be in the world. Do you see that? It's really important. He knew that they were desperately going to need God's protection to be secure. Verse 13, he prays for their joy. In the midst of all they were going to face, as bad as it would be, he says, I want them to have inward peace, tranquility, knowing who their God is, knowing who their Savior is. Notice verse 14, he prays for their victory. I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, that you should keep them from the evil one or the evil. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus prays for their joy, and he prays for their victory. This is really important. It's almost a summary of the whole discourse. He said, listen, Father, as I pray for them, I do not pray you take them out of the world. Do you, please, do you see that? Because we have people today, little sects of Christianity and other places that think what we should do is just kind of get away from this wicked, desperate world and just you know, move to the mountains or wherever we are, for lack of a better term, have our little holy huddles and let them all go to hell. I've actually heard a preacher preach, well, they're going to hell, they'll get theirs. That should kill you inside. To know that your neighbor who you care about, a nice person, without Jesus will go to hell, that should bother you. It's not actually a direct quote in the Bible, but the principle is we are to be in the world, but not what? Of the world. 
How is the world going to know what truth is if the truth, the people who have the truth run from it? You need to be there. You need to be loving. You, obviously, you don't want to, you're not saying, okay, I'll sin so I can be, you know, I'm going to, when I play golf with these guys, I'm going to get drunk so they'll know I'm just like they are. Right? I'm not going to violate my conscience. But does it mean I'm not going to hang around somebody just because they're not a Christian? Of course not. I want them to see Jesus. How else are they going to see it unless I'm there? You have to find the balance. But you have to understand, it's real simple. It's, here it is. If Jesus didn't want us in the world, what would he do? Take us home. Why don't he just come on back? Because this is our hour. What's the title of this series? This is our hour. Now, will Jesus come back before our hour is over? I don't know. But if he comes back before my hour is over, then it's going to be my children's hour. And it's their hour now. Their children's children, my grandchildren. It'll be their turn. I don't know when Jesus is coming back, but I do know when he talked about us, he said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Because Why? Because he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. It is his prayer that we be unified and that we share his name. But we have to be in the world to do it. Thirdly, he prays for their sanctification by his truth. Verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. In case you didn't know what sanctify was real important, apparently, at this point in time, in his prayer. Sanctify them by what? By what? His truth. Here's one of the things that's killing the church in America. We've, we've adopted, in many cases, even in evangelical churches, they've adopted a mindset that truth is relative. Truth is relative. If you think the Bible is true, that's cool. But if you only think parts of it are true, that's cool too. Maybe you'd like to a little bit of this book, a little bit of that book. You might be able to learn something, but the truth that sets free is whom? Jesus Christ. I am the truth. Now, he's either that or he's a liar or he's crazy. He said, I'm the truth. The truth sets you free. Notice what he says as he prays for these guys. Sanctify them by the truth. I want to make sure you get this. So it's really important. The term in Greek means set apart. Sanctify means set apart. But specifically it means set apart for a special intended purpose. Now in my drawer at home in my bathroom I have a comb. I don't know why, but I do. Gerald's laughing at me. I have a comb in my drawer in the bathroom. What do I do with that comb? Don't make that. Let's be, <laughs> let's be fair. I've got two or three hairs left. Most of them are back here. I take that comb every morning, I wet whatever I got up here, and I take the comb and I kind of play with it until it's the best I can do, and then I leave. What's the purpose of a comb? It's to try to straighten out hair. That's its intended purpose, right? Do I use it to pick my nose? Okay, sometimes not. <laughs> I use an ice pick for that. I don't. No. It ha I'm sorry. It had... My granddaughter the other day, or my grandson the other day, and he's such a nice young man. We were seven years old. We were, I don't even know where we were. We were sitting around, and he goes, Randy, you have a big nose. And I said, yes, Jake, all people who love Jesus have a nose. When you go out in the morning, this morning when I went out, I have a set of keys to my car. I put them in the ignition. What do I do with the keys? The, the car key for my Hyundai. What do I do with that key? I put it in the ignition. I turn it. And hopefully the car starts and I can drive. That key has an intended purpose, right? That's what sanctify means. I want to make sure you get mentally that image because here's what he's saying. Look there again at verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The tool that God uses 
to set you apart for your intended purpose is truth. And where do you find truth? The word of God. You have an intended purpose, just like a comb, just like a car key. You have an intended purpose by Jesus Christ, your Savior. They did. And he's saying, Lord, I want to pray for them to be set apart for your intended purpose for them. Our intended purpose, theirs as a group, was to glorify Jesus Christ. Same for us. In different ways, depending on your spiritual gifts, you'd manifest the name of Jesus Christ. He says, I pray they would be sanctified. Take all the principles. We learn God's word. We love God's truth. And then we live it out. That's what it means to be sanctified. So verse 18, Jesus sends them out into the world. I want you to notice one little word in verse 18. It's the first word. What is it? As. Think about that for a moment. God the Father sent God the Son, knowing from eternity past, my hour has come. He sent him to the earth for an intended purpose, to go to the cross, to die for your sins, die for the sins of the 11 guys he's praying for, to go to the cross. He's now sending them out in the same way. Father, you sent me for an intended purpose. I'm sending them out for an intended purpose. The Great Commission, he told them what the purpose was, right? Going to all the world and make disciples. What's the last thing he said to them at the end of that? Do you remember? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'll be with you. No, he'd already told them, I'm not going to be with you physically. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to be with you. Now go do what you got to do. I'm going to be with you. And the tool, please don't miss this, the tool to accomplish my intended purpose for God is truth. Truth, truth, truth. Ephesians, speaking the truth in love. So they'll be set apart. I was reading from Ray Stedman. He's a pastor that I read a lot. He's been around a long time. Very, very godly, elderly gentleman now. And he was talking about he was at a conference once with all of all preachers. That, that would be bad enough in and of itself. But he's at a conference of all pastors. And he's the teacher of the pastors, okay? Because the problem with pastors is they think they know it all. They can't learn anything. But So they're at this conference. He's teaching pastors. And he's talking about the word of God. And this guy comes up to him asking, this guy is a leader of a church. And he says to Ray Stedman, quote, What should I do when I've analyzed a passage of Scripture, I've learned what it means, and I've found that I don't agree with it? And, and Ray Stedman said, I had anticipated such a question, and I really didn't know what to say. Um, and so here's what I said to the guy, quote, I'll tell you what I would do. I would ask myself, what's wrong with me that I don't agree with this passage? It's amazing how many people stand up behind pulpits, and say, thus saith the Lord, when all it is is their opinion about what the Lord should say, or should have said, or what he really meant. Are there some places in the Bible that we don't know everything? Of course. And so we have to say, this is my opinion. But when it comes to who Jesus is, and it comes to how you know God, and what it means to, to have a relationship with God, it's truth. All right, finally, in verse 20. This is, if you've never memorized a verse in the Bible, pick John 17, 20. Jesus is praying, verses 20 through 26, he's praying for his church. Praying for his church. Look at verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, these 11 guys alone. I don't pray for them alone. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. When I, the first time I studied this, I came to this verse, I was like, wow. And I still love to just read it and stop. You understand what Jesus is praying right there? Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father for every Christian that will ever walk the planet. Do you realize that's you? That's me. Jesus is praying these words for me, for you, for us corporately, for his church down through the ages. Jesus prays for them. 
beginning here, and it will go until he comes back. Look at verse 20 again. I do not pray for these alone, but for all who will believe. That's a future tense verb. They will believe in Jesus through the word of the disciples. Through the word of the disciples. Where did the disciples get their word? They got it from Jesus. Now notice, this is so important. I mentioned it earlier, I'll mention it again. All right, here's the, we're finishing up the upper room discourse. How are we going to apply all these great principles? You remember when we first started the upper room discourse? What was the first thing Jesus taught them? This incredible discourse. Do you remember? He washed their feet. The very first thing he did was wash their feet and say to them what? If I, your Lord and Master, have done this, you do likewise. Be a servant. He began with be a servant. So now as he wraps it up and he prays for his church down through the ages, including you and I, I want you to notice in verse 21, what's the first thing he prays for us? That they all may be one. I think he knew people. He prays for unity. Someone has rightly said one of the most divided, dysfunctional places in the world is Sunday morning in churches sometimes. I thank God that I get to serve at a place where people care about each other. They love one another. They're not, it's not about turfism. What I do is more important than what you do. You would be amazed at some of the things I hear from other pastors in this community, in this town, about how hard it is to just get their people to like each other. Notice, don't you think it must have been important to Jesus the first thing he prays is that we would be unified? I wonder why. Think for a moment back to when you didn't go to church. Maybe church is a new thing for you. Or think back to before you were saved. Now, for a moment, place yourself out there in the world, people who don't know Jesus. What is their attitude and mindset about church? They're hypocrites. They don't even get along with each other. They certainly don't live like that, like Jesus during the week. Famous atheist once said, I might believe in Jesus if his followers looked more like him. Doesn't mean you're not going to sin. These 11 guys in the room, did they sin? Lord, did they? It means, how do I deal with it? Am I honest about it? But beyond that, why can't we be unified in the important things we've been talking about and agree to disagree on the others? Depending on who you talk to, it, it, you could, there's only one way you can go to heaven, and it has to be my church. There's only one way you can be baptized, it works. It has to be this way. You have to say these exact words. When you go under, you can't hold your breath. If you don't go under, you're not baptized anyway. And if you don't say the right things, if you don't speak in, in tongues, you can't be saved. Come on. I spoke to a mayor of one of the cities in this area not long ago. I won't tell you who he is. And his, his response to me was, if you, if you believe that you cannot lose your salvation, then you don't believe the Bible. And I had to hold my tongue because he was a mayor. And I figured it wasn't, wasn't the right moment in the middle of that meeting. We can agree to disagree over certain things. But we better be unified. What's our goal? Why are we on the planet? To glorify Jesus Christ. Notice verse 21 again. How does he want us to be unified? As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, are, they may be one in us. That the, what, what's the goal? Verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. Unity, that we would be one. Notice how he describes that unity. I want them to be unified, God, Father, as you and I are. You think God the Father and God the Son sit around fighting with each other? You think the Son ever said, look, Dad, I'm not doing that. Of course not. I don't mean that to be blasphemous. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, before they created the universe, lived in perfect love, harmony, and fellowship. They didn't need us. You know, sometimes we think God's lucky to have me. They had perfect love. You and I can disagree, and, and not we're not necessarily all going to be best friends, but I can love you, and you can love me. Why? 
Because Jesus does. And the world needs to see that. Notice the goal, that the world may believe what? Look at the verse. That the world may believe what? That the Father sent Jesus Christ. Because outside of him, you cannot know God. What's John 14, 6 say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You could be religious, you could be good, you could be altruistic. You cannot know God if you don't know Jesus Christ. And we need to manifest that. We need to share that. We need to love that. Jesus himself said, by your love, they will know you are my disciples. Doesn't mean looking the other way. Doesn't mean acknowledging or accepting something that's wrong. But it means caring, loving, and manifesting the name of Jesus Christ. That we would have oneness, unified that the world might believe. Verse 22, And the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Let, let the world see what God is really like. Glorified. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect or complete in one, that the world may know that you have sent me, and I have, and have loved them as you have loved me. That the world will see what real love is. Now the second thing he prays, and then we're through. Because you see the passion here. Remember, Jesus does not operate time like you, you and I do. He doesn't operate past, present, and future. He's outside time. And when he was on earth, he limited himself, but no, not any longer. He's ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's outside time. His next prayer is this. Not only would they be unified, but they would be, we would be in union together again. Union with Christ. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory with which you've given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. And I declared to them your name and will declare it, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Union with Christ. Here's the picture. Notice what he says, verse 24. Father, I desire that you, those you, you, have, you gave me may be with me where I am. Eternity passed. How long has Jesus known about you? And he still loved you. Here's, here's something. The last thing I want you to take away from this upper room discourse. We talked about this prayer. It's about special relationships. Jesus wants us to be unified on earth in bearing his name. And then when we die, we get to go home and be with him. That's what he's talking about. I want him to be with me. I'm going to be with you, Father. I'm, I'm coming home. But he excitedly looks forward to us being there as well because we are his bride. Why did he use the metaphor of a bride and a bridegroom? Because we understand love a little bit that way. Jesus, the bridegroom, cannot wait for his bride to come home. Remember, he's outside time. He says, Father, I just pray we'll, all, we'll be together. Again, the, at the funeral of a believer, I love to share this. Absent from the body, he's present with the Lord. You're going home. His last thing he says to them, prays for them, is for us. When you get down, you get discouraged, just read these verses. And remember, it's Jesus praying for you to be unified on what's important and realize we'll be together again. Life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. Eternity is forever. Second Corinthians 4 on your outline. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Therefore, even though our outward man is perishing, our inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I realize for those of you that are young, which is most everyone compared with me, when you're young, you don't really think that way. 
But if you ever get a grasp on that, that the Christian life is about thinking eternally, it makes the temporary so much more meaningful. Not just earthly relationships, but principles and the way you live, what's important. That's what the old upper room discourse was about. Jesus had to leave so that we could be saved. They didn't want him to leave. But doesn't God always know what's best? Sure. He said, I've got to go. It's best for you. Aren't you glad he went? I know I am because he went to the cross for me. And so every day I'm reminded as I read the Bible how special that relationship is that God calls me his son because of Jesus Christ. And one day I'll get to see him face to face. That makes life meaningful. And he gives you peace, joy, all the things Jesus talked about in the upper room discourse. So he says to us, love each other, stay focused, unified, love each other, manifest my name, and then come on home when your hour's over. I hope you've enjoyed this series. It, it, I can't tell you how much God t- has taught me, worked in my heart. I love to teach the Bible. It's the highlight of my week. And I, I really, I want you guys to know how much I love you. And I just pray, if nothing else, just take a little time each day and talk to your dad. He loves you. You're special to him. He's already t- talked to you. That's what this is. It's his book to his children to know how to live in a tough world. Bow your heads, please. Father, as we wrap this up, we just want to pause before you as our Father. Lord, each heart here has different things going on. The beauty is you know every one of them. Every single thing that's going on, you know about it. I pray, Father, for comfort where it's needed. I pray for conviction where it's needed. I pray for challenge where it's needed. In each person's heart, they would apply what they've heard from you to go out and share Jesus Christ, to manifest his name for the believers. Lord, for someone who's here who's not a Christian, not a believer, they'd be challenged by who Jesus is. If they believe that he is who he said he was, the way, the truth, and the life, the one sent from God, that they would surrender their life to him right now. So here, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Save me. I need that peace. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing. Thank you.